Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network podcast series. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Charles Delheim. We will be discussing his new book, Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern, published in 2021 by Brandeis University Press. It's an honor to be with you today, Charles. Thank you for your availability and thank you for all the erudition that went into this remarkable piece of scholarship. Oh, that's very generous of you, Ari, and I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. I should uh, mention to our listeners that Charles is a professor of history and Jewish studies at Boston University and that next week this book is coming out in audiobook version by Penguin Random House. Mazel tov on the audiobook version coming out in time for Passover. Well, it's, um, I think, because audio is a mobile medium, it seems to be an appropriate time for um, it to come out. But not that I think either um, Penguin Random House thought of it, nor did I think of it. But it's, it seems to be um, nice timing. Wonderful. Uh, I would like to suggest this to our listeners as a wonderful gift for anyone who would like to bring a, a Passover gift to the satyrs. Um, I would absolutely recommend this book to anyone who themselves is interested or who has a family member who is interested in art, in art history, in aesthetics, and the relationship between Jewish history and art history. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Um, what formative events in your life inspired your interest in art? Well, I don't think that art was the predominant interest in my early life. I was always interested in history and mythology of all of all different periods 
and I loved reading. Um, I studied history and literature. I, you know, grew up in New York City going to museums and in graduate school, um, I began to take an interest in art, but especially in architecture. And um, I'm interested really in a variety of types of um, design, um, visual design. Um, in you know, in particular, though I have to say that I have no artistic talent whatsoever um, myself. And if you saw my drawings from, say, elementary school or junior high school, you would have to uh, admit that I'm right about this. Um, but for the most part, my interest in European art was part of a broader interest in um, the development of European cultural and intellectual history. Why did you write this book? What inspired you in this topic? And what message do you invent, intend to convey to your readers? Well, I, I remember um, reading recently that whenever anyone writes a book, they write it for something along these lines. It's not this way, it's that way. And in the late 1990s, as you know, there was a dramatic resurgence of interest in the fate of Nazi stolen art. It was both a story to be told and a problem to be solved. And for good reason, there were um, considerable efforts, as there still are, to restitute works of art that had been ransacked um, from Jewish art collections um, during the Second World War in particular. And I certainly have every sympathy for um, that drive for restitution. But in, in my, to my mind, uh, what was more interesting historically was how and why Jewish outsiders against all odds came to play so significant a role in the art world. Traditionally, as you know, um, art was at the symbolic core of European high culture. It was the province of monarchs, of nobles, of churchmen, and Jews were not a part of this. Jews were the proverbial people of the book, more focused on um, sacred texts that, uh, and on visual images. And um, this begins to change in a significant way with Jewish emancipation and the encounter of Jews with European aesthetic traditions. So what I was interested in understanding was both the rise and fall of Jews in the art world, what role they played in the um, transmission of um, old master paintings from Europe to the United States and the making of great public and private museums, and especially in the role they had is in championing successive um, forms of modern art. What contribution does your book make to our understanding of material culture? Well, I think what it probably shows is the importance of understanding the social history of objects. Um, you know, one of the things that one tends to overlook um, in a museum is this whole question of provenance. And, you know, provenance um, became a lively, indeed, very controversial subject in the late 1990s and subsequently 
when there were disputes over the ownership of works of art and objects have a history and tracing the ownership of objects um, tells us a lot about not only individual taste and individual lives, um, but also about larger trends. Um, one of the paintings I discussed in the book is Joshua Reynolds' um, um, beautiful portrait of Georgiana Spencer, the Duchess of Devonshire, and uh, one of De Princess Diana's ancestors. And it was commissioned by her family, a leading um, English aristocratic family. Um, and it ends up um, on the other side of the ocean. And the story behind this is interesting because we're not just talking about individual actions, but also about major social economic transformations. Um, this picture had been in the family collection for um, about a century and a half, roughly, um, when Earl Spencer, who um, needed to raise liquid capital um, to pay off his considerable debts and to run his very grand um, country house, Altrup, had to raise money and very reluctantly put up um, some of the jewels from his family art collection, uh, which were um, purchased by Joseph Duveen, uh, one of the main characters of the book, and eventually um, sold. And um, the objects that we look at um, are both interesting aesthetically, um, in terms of their form, their style, their relationship to other objects, but they're also interesting in terms of their social history. And that's what really I found most compelling. How does your book advance our understanding of museums? What is your book's contribution to museum studies? Well, you know, as you know, museums have come in for considerable criticism in recent years. Um, They've been criticized uh, for some kind of complicity with the expropriation of the uh, cultural assets of Native peoples um, by colonial powers. Um, they've also taken a hit uh, because um, museums were slow in certain cases to recognize that they were exhibiting or um, they possessed works that had been plundered by Nazis from Jewish-owned collections. But I think what my book shows is two major things. In terms of the backdrop, um, none of what I really discussed would have been possible in relation to old masters. Um, without the gradual opening of European high culture, which John Brewer beautifully describes in his great book, The Pleasures of the Imagination, in which he discusses the movement of the arts from the court to the city, in particular to metropolitan centers. And what I discuss in the book is part of this gradual opening of European high culture and this process of democratization. But I think what's probably more directly significant is to show the ways in which museum collections are formed. And one of the, the people who I found most interesting 
and in fact still do, um, was Benjamin Oldman. Um, you know, I grew up in New York City and I would go um, with, to uh, B. Altman department stores um, with my mother um, um, fairly often um, in the course of um, childhood um, to, for her to, um, to buy um, presents or clothes for herself. And at the time, I had no idea that B. Altman, that is Benjamin Altman, was one of the most extraordinary art collectors of the time. And one of the things that I think is most interesting in the book is to show the ways in which, um, you know, men and women who were self-made and in the arts, almost entirely self-taught, um, became major connoisseurs and formed collections. And the Altman story, I think, is one of the most interesting ones. And we can certainly talk about that. Um, or if people are interested, they can sure. Uh, read about it. Sure. Um, maybe we can segue. Um, would you care to tell us about the story of the Altmans? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Benjamin Altman was born in New York City. He was the son of Bavarian immigrants. Um, his father, like many Jews, had a dry goods store. Um, but it was a dry goods store which was not particularly successful. Um, he and his brother um, took it over. And then when he took sole control of the store, um, he turned it into one of the great department stores in New York City. Um, Altman was a very hard worker, um, but he also had a tremendous gift for organization, which is one of the essential things you need um, to build and to sustain a department store. He also um, was scrupulous about selecting the objects. Um, he was a prudent and deliberate man. He was um, um, the tortoise rather than the hare, but a very gifted um, tortoise. And uh, he was a lifelong bachelor. Um, he was not a man who cared much about um, social status. He was part of the group of German Jewish families that was known in those days in ours as our crowd. And that was his social circle. He begins to collect um, Chinese pottery and porcelain and the same kind of scrupulousness about objects that went into building the department store, went into um, shaping his art collection. And late one evening, um, he stands outside the shop, which turns out to be the small gallery of a um, Dutch immigrant named Henry Duveen, a young man with a thick Dutch accent and a walrus mustache um, who uh, was specializing in decorative art. And Duveen was closing the shop and Altman had no wish to disturb him. Uh, but they chatted for a moment and Altman went back. And this was the, you know, rather ordinary and if you like, inauspicious beginning of a important relationship. So Altman begins, but with decorative art. Um, but he soon becomes interested in painting. Uh, at the time, the Duveens were moving into the market for old master paintings, 
And there was by then a considerable amount of competition from people like um, Huntington or Frick or um, Isabella Stewart Gardner, who were also trying to buy these great works of European art. And with the help of the Duveens, um, Altman builds a great collection. And what's interesting about this was that he started out, it seems, with the idea of building a museum quality, but also a museum style collection. Um, like many New York merchants, Jewish and non-Jewish, he was particularly fond of the artists of the Dutch Golden Age, above all Rembrandt. But he did not confine his collecting to any one school or any one period. And he purchased examples of um, different schools of art from late medieval Italians through the early modern period. And um, in his mansion on Fifth Avenue, he built what looks for all intents and purposes like a museum. Uh, unlike many collectors, um, as I mentioned before, he was not interested in social status. Um, he didn't want to show off his art. He rarely exhibited it. Um, this was for his own pleasure and enlightenment. And um, he bought a great deal of um, great art, um, but he moved slowly, much to the chagrin of the Duveens, who were always pushing him um, to consider X painting or Y painting. Um, he was distant from the world of the Metropolitan Museum, which was a world controlled by the white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestant elite in New York. And he did not care to cultivate their um, acquaintance through art. Um, but in the end, much to the surprise and delight, of the officials of the Metropolitan, Edward Robinson, the director, and still more J.P. Morgan, um, um, the president, Altman donated his collection, which includes, among other pieces, um, Rembrandt's great painting of Bathsheba, reading this letter um, from King David um, calling for her. And he donated it to the Metropolitan, why? Um, not out of any love of the museum, not out of a sense of connection to the people who ran it, um, but he had a very deep attachment to the people of his native city. And um, he wanted everyone to have access to the beautiful works of art that had given him so much pleasure and edification. Who were Henry and Joel Duveen? Can, can you tell us about them? You alluded to the Duveens earlier. Um, can you elaborate upon who they were and why they are significant? Sure. Um, uh, Joel Duveen was the eldest son of a Dutch family in the small town of Meppel, which had a, an iron foundry firm. Um, the family foundry flagged and Joel found himself uh, with the need um, to earn a living. Um, he ends up going to England in the 1860s to the um, Yorkshire port city of Hull. And uh, with an introduction which gets him a um, sold vegetable produce to grocers. 
Um, so it's a very modest start in life. But Henry Joel was um, enterprising, smart, determined, um, inventive, and resourceful. And uh, on one holiday, uh, I think in 1868, he and his um, future brother-in-law go back to Holland to visit um, Joel's uncle Jop, um, who was an antiques dealer. They go to Jop's warehouse and they see an enormous profusion of blue and white um, Dutch china um, pottery. And they decide to take a chance and to buy it. And Joel buys it up everything he can bring back. And he begins selling it to grocers who are more than happy to take it. And um, then he decides to um, take the risk of going into business for himself. And he specializes in decorative art. He starts with works that were really very ordinary and then very quickly moves into high quality works of art. And what's interesting about Joel Duveen um, and about Benjamin Altman, but in fact also about almost everyone else that I write about in the book is he was self-taught. He is a man with very little formal schooling. And he learned about art through experience by, you know, museums, galleries, looking at object after object. And he sets up a shop in Hull and he begins in, um, the, in the, the decorative art business. Um, Joel had the foresight um, to understand that there was a burgeoning American um, market. And he decides to send his um, troublesome and lovelorn younger brother, Henry, um, to America, first to get him away um, from what the family considered an inappropriate um, romance, um, but mainly to set up a shop of his own. Um, Henry was headstrong and he was difficult. He was none too happy about being pried away from his beloved. Um, but he goes to Boston where he finds no business to be had and then very quickly on to New York. And um, there he has a piece of extraordinary luck that one of the people who saunter into his um, small, unprepossessing little shop is Stanford White. Um, arguably the greatest um, architect of the day, a man of the world who comes from the New York's um, old gentry and whose clients include the likes of Japens on Fifth Avenue and need to decorate them. And Henry, um, with Joel's help, is uh, more than happy to comply. And so what the Duveens do is develop a transatlantic business uh, eventually, um, Joel moves to London. Um, Henry is based in New York, and um, not long after, they have a gallery in Paris. Um, the brothers were both very skilled businessmen uh, with um, finely um, developed uh, um, eyes, um, but they also had a very stormy relationship. Um, Joel could not forget for years that Henry had been um, the troublesome younger brother. 
And Henry resented the fact that his elder brother, who may have started the business, um, did not perhaps recognize the importance of his own um, contributions. But um, that aside, um, they managed to work together, um, <laughs> divided by an ocean um, much of the time, and they built a, um, a hugely successful business. Uh, which was eventually taken over by Joel's imperious and gifted um, eldest son, Joseph. Another individual I'd like to ask you about is Nathan Wildenstein. Why is he a notable figure? Well, Nathan Wildenstein is a notable figure for a number of reasons. First, he, like many of the characters I write about, um, he's a commercial middleman who learns to apply um, the skills and habits that he made in an ordinary business to art dealing. Um, he's also a notable figure because he is, like many of the people that I've mentioned, as I said previously, he is a self-made man and he's self-taught. Um, he develops an extraordinary eye. Um, third, along with his partner, um, Ernest Gampel, um, they open a um, an outpost in New York, um, Gampel and Wildenstein. But what's most interesting about Nathan is where he begins. Um, you would have been hard pressed, however prophetic your powers, to predict that Nathan Wildenstein, born in 1853, if I remember correctly, um, I'll check that, um, would have become an art dealer. Uh, he was born in a tiny village in Alsace. He was the grandson and son of horse dealers. Uh, his family were, as far as we know, um, you know, traditional Jews. They went to synagogue. They observed holidays. Um, they kept kosher. Um, but it's highly unlikely that they were particularly pious, um, let alone um, learned. And Nathan follows his father and grandfather into horse stealing. I have a certain affection for that because my family, my father's family, um, who lived for centuries on the other side of the Rhine in the Palatinate um, near Mannheim, uh, were also horse dealers. And it's more than likely that Nathan Wildenstein would have spent the rest of his life, happily or not, as a horse dealer had it not been for the Franco-Prussian War. And as the Prussians uh, win the war, uh, are winning the war, Nathan, like many Jews, um, uh, flee German or Prussian domination and seeks his fortune elsewhere. And he ends up in a small um, town in uh, Champagne uh, called Vitry le Francais. And um, he works as a um, tailor's assistant and a textile merchant. And then one day around 1875, a, um, a female client of his um, comes to him with an extraordinary request. Um, she had a picture to sell. Would he take it on? And Nathan was the sort of person who thought that he could sell anything good to anyone under the right conditions. And he accepts the proposition. Uh, there was only one problem. Uh, he knew nothing, absolutely nothing about art. Uh, this woman goes to Paris. Um, he spends 10 days scouring the Louvre, um, savoring its heavenly delights 
as he calls them. And he decides that the painting comes from the school of Van Dyck. And this is the beginning of his gradual transition to art dealing. Um, Nathan and his wife, Laura, um, moved to Paris and um, he sets up shop there. He has some very rough times, times when he can't pay the rent and he has to duck past the concierge, the ever-present concierge in the apartment building and that he lives in, um, but he flourishes. And what's interesting about Nathan is that Nathan specializes in 18th century French classical art. And this is his way into um, French culture. It is a, um, an emblem of national citizenship. It is a proof of belonging. Um, we really don't know um, to what extent um, the eye, um, an eye for art is intrinsic or acquired. It's almost certainly a bit of both. Um, but we know that Nathan Wildenstein became one of the great connoisseurs of the, his age. And while he was not particularly interested in art history, he had an extraordinary ability to identify and evaluate um, works of art, so much so um, that within decades of his first visit um, to the, the, uh, the Palace of the Louvre, um, um, its professor's erstwhile horse dealer to identify works of art. Who were René and Ernest Gimpel? Can you tell their stories for us? Sure. Some of my favorite characters. So Ernest Gampel, like um, Nathan Wildenstein, who's eventually and eventually becomes his partner, is another Alsatian Jew. Um, he comes from a better educated family. His father is a school teacher. And um, he leaves Alsace for Paris um, to again avoid German dominion and to seek his fortune. And somehow or other, we don't know how, he becomes a very successful um, commodities broker and acquires a seat on the boss. Um, um, he meets Nathan Wildenstein and they go into business together. And what's interesting about this was that Gambell gave up what was to date a very successful career, um, which afforded him a good living and a degree of social standing um, to throw in his lot with um, Wildenstein. Um, he had a charming and appealing manner and um, very significantly, he spoke good English. And that was important for a couple of reasons. It made their buying trips to um, English auction houses and galleries like um, Kolnagi's in London a lot easier. But it also allowed Ernest to go to America in 1901 and to establish a gallery in New York. And um, the Gampels are partners with the Wildensteins, but they also have close ties with the Duveens. And eventually uh, marries one of Joel Duveen's daughters, Flory. 
And what you see there is a kind of dynastic marriage, um, which was not uncommon in the in the art world, um, as in the world, the very different world of merchant banking. And Ernest sets up this gallery and goes back and forth between Paris and New York. And um, he dies suddenly, very young, of diphtheria. And this leaves the business or his share of the business in the hands of his son, Rene. Uh, Rene was um, an, an only child, as I mentioned, and he goes to a lycée, the Collège Roland, where he receives a, a rigorous French secondary education. Um, and then he enters the um, family business. He has um, and his own apprenticeship in New York. Um, and he travels around the United States, travels from New York to Chicago, learns the ins and outs of the world of old masters and of decorative art. Um, he's a person with deep literary and artistic interests. Um, um, he had ambitions to be a writer. Um, he wrote a couple of plays. And uh, one of the people he met on a seaside holiday in Normandy uh, was Marcel Proust, who had not yet begun publishing his great masterpiece, um, but who took an interest in Gampel, and they struck up a um, friendship. Uh, Gampel runs the family business. Um, he is in partnership with Nathan Wildenstein, um, who was a very wily and clever man, um, an extraordinary connoisseur and an extraordinary salesman. And when the First World War comes, Rene Gampel was, like so many Jews, eager to fight for his country. Um, but he was too ill to do so, and he was turned away and unable to enlist in the French army, uh, which was a source of time and indeed subsequently. But he becomes um, a transatlantic dealer, um, a, um, an estimable connoisseur, and in the 1920s and 30s, he becomes the chronicler of the art world. He writes an extraordinary um, diary, uh, which was published um, posthumously, um, in which he records um, uh, the doings of the art world and its denizens, um, critics, collectors, dealers, historians, um, fellow um, connoisseurs. And um, he travels around America and as well as Europe. And in addition to dealing with you know, major museums like the Metropolitan and big time collectors like Benjamin Altman, um, he also plays a very notable role in shaping the collections of smaller but very fine museums, the Toledo Art Museum and the Detroit Institute of Art. And in 1939, when the, um, the war begins, um, he is eager once again to defend his country and to fight against the despised Germans, but is unable to do so. But as France falls to the Germans in the middle of June 1940, um, René Gampel heads south and eventually joins the resistance. 
what role did women play in the story and stories you tell? Can you comment on the wives of the dealers that you portray in the book? Well, I think the wives um, are not necessarily very important figures in the in artistic matters, um, but there are some very important and fascinating um, um, female figures. Um, one of which is Berthe Weil, or Veil, as they would say, um, grows up in a lower middle class Jewish Parisian family. Um, uh, her mother has some artistic interests, more in theater and in opera. And um, she goes off to work at the bric-a-brac shop in Montmartre of a man named Salvador uh, Meyer. And um, that's where she learns the ins and arts outs of the art trade. Um, but because the shop is located in Montmartre, and um, uh, which is a, a district which was peopled by um, artists, writers, cabaret singers, theater performers, boxers, mattress workers, um, prostitutes, cabaret owners. Um, she sees bohemian life in Paris um, firsthand, and she gets to be to get to know some of the young artists. And she very courageously decides to open her own gallery and to use her dowry um, to do so. Um, and she, initially, she works with her brother. And you know, it's a remarkable woman um, in every way. And really, she had three strikes against her in the art world. First, she was a woman in a man's world. Second, she was a Jewish woman in a predominantly non-Jewish world. And third, she was an aficionado of avant-garde art. Um, Berthe Weil was uh, a woman with um, just extraordinary taste. Um, uh, one of her painters, Raoul Dupy, um, called her La Merveille, um, the marvel, um, because of her ability um, to see um, real talent in um, the often in the early works of painters, and among those whose works she um, championed and exhibited were Modigliani, uh, Matisse, and um, Picasso. Um, she opens a small gallery in the lower regions of Montmartre, and um, it's a homely and makeshift little place. Um, uh, she ends up having to hang many of her pictures um, in her bedroom above the shop, um, initially on laundry pegs. And um, she's very much part of this world of avant-garde um, painters. And um, she champions their cause courageously and bravely, despite the fact that she has almost no money. And the lack of capital um, cripples her because she's unable to hang on to um, the magnificent pictures that she buys. Um, she has to sell them um, as quickly as she can for very, very modest returns. And as a result, um, she's unable to plow um, so-called profits back into the business. And she's also unable to pay 
her artist enough uh, money to live on. So sadly, reluctantly, her artists love her and then leave her for more established um, um, dealers. There are many other women in the book. Um, um, Isabella Stewart Gardner, um, who founds the, um, the greatest um, private museum um, in Boston uh, with the help of her uh, Russian Jewish born um, expert, Bernard Berenson. Um, and at the end of the book, another of my favorite characters, Rose Valland, um, who is um, uh, an assistant curator at the Jeu de Pomme, of this little jewel of a museum, the Tuileries Gardens, during the uh, occupation where she keeps track of all of the paintings, mostly modern paintings, um, that the Nazis have ransacked from his uh, heroic role in tracking and ultimately recovering stolen art. The aesthetic question, is modernism Jewish, is a sub-theme to this book. How would you answer that question? Well, one reviewer said that I answered it equivocally. I guess I would prefer to say that I answered it subtly or with due regard to its complexity. So just to lay it out, um, the question of whether it's a question uh, in large part because of the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis considered modern art degenerate. It was an, an Kunst, a degenerate art, which they associated with Jews and Bolsheviks. So it was degenerate because it was Jewish, and it was Jewish because it was degenerate. And the condemnation of modern art as um, a Jewish plot, as a mortal threat to the um, racial purity of German of the German people of the Aryan race was part of the stock and trade of the Nazis. Um, it was related to the um, e equally ludicrous condemnation of um, psychoanalysis and relativity theory as Jewish sciences. It was related to the um, the horrific book burning. Um, which took place soon after the Nazis came to power and books burned not only by the likes of Einstein and Freud, um, but also toast um, crazily um, Helen Keller. So in dealing with Jews and modernism, um, it's hard to disentangle Jewish, disentangle Jewish involvement with the arts with the Nazi charge that modernism was in some sense Jewish, um, which was pejorative and um, perilous. What is the truth of the matter? Well, the truth of the matter is that Jews play an outsized role in um, the world of modern art as um, critics, as collectors, as dealers, as connoisseurs, and not least as artists. And the reason this is so significant in schools of modern art from, say, post-impressionism, um, cubism, surrealism, um, that we know as modern art, um, that this was really the first opportunity that Jews had 
to play a leading role in the art world. And the reason for this is, uh, the reasons has a lot to do with timing. Um, the migration of large numbers of Jews from Russia and Eastern Europe and from rural lands to cities coincides with the birth of modernism. Um, had um, Jews moved to, <coughs> sorry, I'm losing my voice. Um, Pardon me. So had Jews um, migrated to Paris or Berlin, um, say, uh, or Vienna um, 25 years or 50 years later, um, they would have played virtually no role in modern art because modern art, as we know, was preeminently a metropolitan movement. So timing has a great deal to do with this, the process of urbanization. But there are other factors too. If you look at the um, enterprises, commercial, artistic, um, intellectual, in which Jews clustered, um, they look something like this. There are rapidly expanding enterprises in which there are relatively low barriers to entry, in which professional um, hierarchies have not yet gelled, and therefore discrimination uh, may exist, but it was limited. And that's true of a variety of businesses and of intellectual and artistic endeavors that Jews become involved with. Um, Jews are able to enter modern art on the ground floor um, around 1900, and um, so they did. There's another thing that comes into play with the Jews and modernism is the avant-garde was among other things, um, an international and urban social community. And you know, when you bear in mind that you know, Jews were post-emancipation looking for ways to define a cultural role, um, you begin to understand why art and particularly modern art becomes important. Um, you didn't have to accept baptism to become a Christian, um, either um, out of expediency or conviction, um, to play a role in the world of modern art. Uh, what mattered in the avant-garde was less your ethnic origins um, or your religious convictions than your own aesthetic commitments. And for Jews um, who wanted to be good Europeans, um, modern art was a very appealing enterprise. So those are some of the things that come into play. But at the same time, you know, modernism was not a Jewish movement per se. I mean, first, it's not a Jewish movement in the sense that it has anything to do with the religion. I mean, the role of religion in modern um, art and thought is a complicated question, um, but Judaism does not come enter into things here. Second, if you're looking, sure, there are some significant Jewish artists, um, Max Lieberman, Chaim Soutine, um, Mark Chagall, Amadeo Modigliani, um, but the, the leading figures in the movement are not Jews, whether it's Picasso or Matisse. What was the relationship between Cubism and the Jews? 
Well, first, I think you have to be um, careful whenever you use the term the Jews. There were some Jews who were interested in modern art. There were some Jews who were interested in old masters. There were some Jews who weren't interested in art at all. And in that regard, they were very much like their non-Jewish compatriots. Mm-hmm. But Jewish dealers and collectors have a very significant role in the history of Cubism. Let me give you an example. Um, Daniel Henri Kahnweiler. Um, Kahnweiler um, is born in the Rhineland um, Palatinate. He's born in Mannheim, um, about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 miles from where my own family lived for centuries. Few pictures or books, a prosperous bourgeois family. Um, his father um, uh, works with his um, his wife's um, brothers, the Neumanns, who are um, wealthy uh, figures in commerce, finance, and stockbroking. Uh, Conweiler has artistic and intellectual interests, but he has no real sense of direction. And uh, reluctantly or not, he follows the path his father and, and mother laid out for him and goes into business. He's in a um, a bank in, in Germany, and then they stick him, as they say, um, in a stockbroking firm in Paris. Um, but that's the turning point. He goes to Paris. Um, he works at a stockbroking firm. And whenever the bell goes off for lunch, he heads off to one or another of Paris's museums. Um, he spends his spare time reading about art, going to museums, going to galleries. And um, in the Luxembourg, the Musée du Luxembourg uh, on the left bank, um, he um, um, happens upon the Kaibat collection, um, Gustave Kaibat being one of the members of the Impressionist circle, who unlike most, though not all of his fellows, um, came from a, a very prosperous family and which gave him the means to spend his life painting, but also gave him the opportunity to patronize um, his fellow's works of art. And Conweller wanders into this gallery and he has no idea what he's looking at. He is baffled, he is confused. But this was a creative confusion for him because what he realized was that um, it took time to understand new artistic languages. He eventually ends up in London and uh, working for his uncles. He does rather well at his job, but he is bored. And just as they're about to send him to Johannesburg to run their South African office out of nowhere, he tells them that he wants to be an art dealer. Um, They are astonished, but understanding. And to make a long story short, they make him an offer he can't refuse. Uh, They will pay for his gallery uh, for a year in Paris in a modest way. At the end of that year, if he hasn't made the gallery work, he's got to come back to the family business and there will be no more talk of becoming an art dealer. But he does make the gallery work. And in 1907, he goes to Paris, um, returns there rather, the city of his dreams, and um, he really doesn't know what to do. Um, He wants to buy the work of Cezanne, um, but he doesn't have enough funds to do so. Um, and he begins scouring the so-called black cell, Dotum, uh, salon, which were not part of the official um, um, Paris salon. And he begins to learn about um, what was going on in the avant-garde. 
Um, he also um, uh, establishes contacts with other um, German uh, refugees, or sorry, German um, expatriates rather, big distinction among them, a man named Willi Uda, who um, came from a eminent German family. His father was a judge and Willi ends up in Paris um, and collecting art and then ultimately for a time um, dealing in art. And Willi tells uh, Kahnweiler about a, an extraordinary painting that he's heard of. And this painting turns out to be the work of Pablo Picasso. And it's a painting we know as Demoiselle d'Avignon. Now, um, for years in the, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and originally called the Philosophical Brothel. And Conweiler troops up from his um, modest little gallery in the 8th arrondissement. Um, to the uh, the northernmost part of Paris, to the butte of Montmartre, and enters this ramshackle building um, called the Bateau Lavoir, because um, it looked like an upside down laundry boat. And um, he finally enters Picasso's studio, uh, which was a place of almost total chaos in which she'd never seen before, the first great Cubist painting. Um, he doesn't claim to understand it, but he knows immediately that this is a painting which signals a new artistic moment. And Conweiler begins buying Picasso's. But in a sense, most importantly, he establishes ties with Picasso, who had had a rough time in the art market, didn't trust dealers, and... Um, they eventually get to know each other, not least because uh, Conweiler commissions a portrait from uh, Picasso. And um, through these personal ties um, and these personal encounters, he impresses the young Spanish painter. And Conweiler becomes the dealer for all of the Cubists. Um, he also writes a treatise on Cubism. He does this um, during the First World War when he takes refuge in Switzerland uh, rather than fight for or against Germany. And among his compatriots um, was another German um, Jew, um, Alfred Fleschstein, um, um, and a grain dealer who fell in love with modern art and begins collecting um, Picassos and the Cubists. And among those who visit um, Conweiler's gallery was a remarkable young man who plays a very important role in the book named Leos Rosenberg, Science of a um, an estimable art dealing family on, on the Rue Vignon, this little street where he sees a painting in the window that captures his intention. And it turns out to be a Van Dongen. And he goes inside and he sees this array of Cubist paintings which bowl him over. And he begins buying um, these paintings. And during the war, after Conweiler has decamped for Switzerland, um, leaving the uh, Picasso and his friends in the desperate situation without an income, without their uh, most ardent and capable champion, it's Leonce Rosenberg who steps into the breach. And his the gallery that he forms after the war um, is a gallery dedicated to Cubism.
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Who was Bernard Berenson? What does your book ah. tell us about him? And in light of the way you describe his upbringing, uh, what can be learned about Orthodox Jewish attitudes towards art during this time? And how did he deal with the, those contradictions? So who is Bernard Berenson was a question that was often asked in the art world. Um, um, in 1895, uh, a then largely unknown young connoisseur from America wrote a devastating pamphlet excoriating a collection of um, um, Italian Renaissance paintings shown at the New Gallery in London. Uh, a show in which the young Joseph Duvine had played a part. And Berenson just explodes all of the um, attributions um, and makes quite a name for himself in the art world. Um, he grows up in a shtetl outside of Vilna, family. Um, his father um, was not Orthodox, but his father um, rather unhappily bowed to his um, grandfather's wishes. And he grows up in a world in which uh, visual icons were deeply distrusted. They were associated with the uh, Christian oppressors of Jews. They were fearsome objects um, to be avoided, as was anything associated with um, the church. And, you know, this goes back to an interpretation, and many would say a misinterpretation, of the second commandment, which cast a, a very long but ambiguous shadow. So the ban on the production of idols and on idol worship has been interpreted in um, many different ways. Uh, for certain Orthodox Jews, um, it was taken to be a ban on all visual images. Um, but for many others, um, the case was not so clear. And uh, uh, Moshe Halbertal, among others, has um, written about this um, in the invention of the aesthetic category. But interpretations 
um, accuracy, validity, notwithstanding, um, Berenson grows up in a world in which there are virtually no visual images, um, or at least none that are accessible to him or acceptable to his culture. Um, at age 10, he migrates with his family um, to Boston, uh, first to the north end of Boston and then to the west end, um, which no longer exists. It was destroyed in the so-called urban renewal of the, the 1960s. And um, Berenson from the first was a man, a young boy with prodigious intellectual gifts. He was regarded as the family genius and education became his way out of poverty and insecurity. Um, his father, Alter, um, was a very learned man, um, very intelligent man, um, who um, made his living as a peddler. And he hoped to parlay peddling into um, a secure life, and indeed for his family, and indeed um, fortune. Um, but it was not to be, and Alter became increasingly angry, disillusioned, um, and apostate distanced from Judaism. And ultimately, um, um, Bernhard becomes the, the great hope, well, not ultimately, he becomes the great hope of the family. Um, he um, moves to, through um, the educational system. Um, he moves to uh, first grade public school in America, indeed, I think, the first public school in America. And after a year at Boston University, um, he moves to Harvard. And um, at Harvard, um, everything changes for him. He's introduced to the, the world of proper Bostonians, of Boston Brahmins. Um, uh, and he's also intent on assimilating, acculturating. Um, he becomes an Episcopalian. Um, as far as we know, this was a sincere religious conviction, but it was also opportunistic uh, for Berenson believing and belonging went hand in hand. And at Harvard, um, he begins studying art history, uh, but art history was not a well-developed um, discipline um, in the United States. Art history that he was exposed to was this highly moralistic version put forth by Charles Eliot Norton, um, a uh, man with impeccable Harvard credentials and um, connections, who evidently didn't much like Berenson um, or uh, respect him. I think, in fact, um, it would be true to say um, that um, Norton, um, if not envied Berenson, if nothing truly envy, um, was somewhat frightened of him. Um, Berenson's knowledge of art, his discovery of art, though, really takes place um, on an extended trip to Europe, which is financed by his Boston patrons, um, among them um, art lover 
and philanthropist Isabella Stewart Gardner. And there he has this extraordinary encounter with um, European artistic tradition. And he's really overwhelmed by what he sees. And I think one of the reasons why he was so overwhelmed was that having grown up in a world bereft of images, um, having grown up in a world in which visual icons were, as I said, um, fearsome objects associated with Christians and with the Christian persecution of Jews. Um, in a sense, Berenson had no defense against what he saw. Um, he goes to Europe dreaming about being the next Goethe, becoming the next Goethe, um, but his interests um, gradually turn to art. And under the influence of the Italian um, connoisseur, physician, politician, student of anatomy, Giovanni Morelli, um, he develops a method for looking at art. Um, he converts to Catholicism um, during his first years in Italy, again, believing and belonging go together. Um, but has his wife, uh, Mary Ischens, failed? Um, he was not affected um, deeply um, by, um, or at least lastingly, rather, by Episcopalianism or Catholicism. And what he develops is a method of looking at art in which um, um, seeing and believing are, um, they're not connected. Um, he doesn't look at Christian art of the Renaissance as objects of adoration. Um, he looks about them and looks at them as a connoisseur. And he becomes um, one of the great connoisseurs of the age, becomes involved in um, the art trade, um, becomes the expert advisor to Isabella Stewart Gardner, a very complicated relationship, and eventually works with most of the great art dealers of the day, and in particular, the Duveens. How did the dispossession of Jewish art unfold? Can you explain this process for us? Sure. Um, look, um, you know, we know that um, art looting was nothing new or nothing unique to the Nazis. Um, fine art and artifacts had long been among the, um, the spoils of war, the trophies of empire. Um, but the dispossession of Jews was a very different matter. It was massive. It was systematic. It was carried out and controlled by a bureaucracy. Um, but above all, it was fueled by enormous greed and um, astonishingly deep and rabid um, racial hatred. So when Napoleon um, 
uh, marches into Spain and um, he comes away with some of the great paintings of the Spanish Golden Age, including masterpieces by Velazquez, which he brings back to Paris, uh, where they eventually have a leavening effect on um, Edouard Manet uh, in particular. He doesn't do this because he believes the Spaniards are inferior um, or subhuman. And he doesn't justify it this way. It's for his own glory. It is for the glory of France. But the Nazi dispossession of Jews is predicated on the racist assumption that Jews have no instinct for beauty, that they can only be imitators and never creators, an idea um, that dates back at least as far as Richard Wagner's notorious treatise on the Jews um, in music, which I believe is published in 1847. Um, but it's also predicated on the idea that Jews had no right to own art, that the great works of so-called Aryan artists like Rembrandt in the hands of Jews, that Jews had no sense of beauty they could possess, but they could never um, appreciate art. Um, it's also predicated on the assumption that art improperly that they had no right to the art they possessed, that they had acquired this art with ill-gotten gains um, taken from Gentiles. The dispossession of art begins in Germany and in Austria almost um, immediately after um, the Anschluss. Um, this unfolds, um, but it's most striking um, once the war actually breaks out. In one country after another on the continent, um, that um, the Wehrmacht um, topples and the Germans occupy, um, there is a systematic um, plundering of art. The Germans march into Paris with a list of the leading Jewish art dealers and um, collectors. And while there was some talk about plundering um, French art museums, in which there were, of course, and still are untold artistic riches, um, this was for political reasons, something that was off the table. Um, but Jewish art dealers and collectors were vulnerable. Even the most influential, um, the best connected of them. And the plunder was astonishingly large. And it included the plunder not only of um, pictures, sculptures, decorative art, um, but of rare books, of precious manuscripts, of holy objects, of musical instruments. And this was the, the largest plunder of art objects in history. Who was Paul Kassirer? Why is he a significant figure in the story you tell in your book? Well, Paul Cassira becomes the uh, one of the leading exponents of avant-garde art and literature um, in Germany. Um, unlike most of the people um, who I write about who founded art galleries 
uh, Kasira came from a well-educated and prosperous family. Um, he goes to university, studies art history and art at the University of Munich. Um, he writes a novel. He lives and works in bohemian circles. And towards the end of the 19th century, um, along with his cousin Bruno, um, he establishes a, an art gallery in um, Berlin, which specializes in modern art. And Paul and Bruno become the secretaries, that is, the administrators of the Berlin Secession. The Berlin Secession was a, a breakaway group of artists who seceded from the academy, rejected academic painting, uh, rejected history painting, rejected classical standards, and were much influenced initially, at least, by French Impressionism and then by um, post-Impressionism. Uh, this was a politically charged decision because of the profound antagonism um, between France and Germany um, in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, but also in the long-standing um, German fear of French cultural domination, uh, which went back at least as far as the 18th century Enlightenment or the Aufklärung. So not yet 30, um, Paul Cassira and Bruno opened their gallery and they champion um, the artists of the secession, um, the most important of which was Max Liebermann. Max Liebermann came from a a well-established and affluent um, Berlin Jewish family. He made no bones about his identity um, or his heritage. At the same time, he thought it had nothing to do um, with his art. And um, Kusira um, spearheads the secession. Um, before long, Paul and Bruno um, part ways. They can't get along. Um, Bruno takes over the publishing house they had founding, founded. Um, Paul takes over the gallery, but he also forms a soon establishes a um, an avant-garde uh, literary magazine um, of his own, and then begins publishing um, books. And one of his many accomplishments was it was at the Casira Gallery, as Harry. Graf Kessler um, pointed out that um, young people and not such young people in Berlin um, were first introduced to the works of the great Impressionist and post-Impressionist painters. Um, but one of um, Kassira's many accomplishments was championing Van Gogh, who was at that time not entirely unknown in Germany, um, but it is Kassira who really makes his reputation, gets his work into galleries, establish, helps establish its commercial and critical value. Uh, the secession was not a Jewish movement, far from it. Most of the artists of the, of the secession um, were not Jews at all. 
but some of the, the most visible figures of the secession, Lieberman and Kassira, were Jews. And they become a lightning rod for a reactionary um, sentiment for anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, there were attacks even before 1914 um, of the um, Jew-infested West End of Berlin, of the cashier hands of certain dealers and critics who remained unnamed. Uh, they were championing an art that was un-German. Uh, they were doing so, it was alleged, at the... Um, expense of German artists. Um, during the war, um, Kassira, uh, who was in his 40s, um, enlists, um, fights bravely, um, is decorated um, for his efforts, but also becomes very ill and goes back to Berlin. And there he turns against the war and becomes um, a pacifist um, and is much maligned for his efforts. And um, in the 1920s, um, uh, because, for many factors, but largely because of, the, of a very painful breakup with um, his wife, um, precipitated by her adultery, he um, commits suicide. And at the time, um, he was the leading figure in the German art world, someone who had helped scores of young artists and uh, dealers, um, connoisseurs, Jews and non-Jewish, and non-Jews alike. Can you comment on World War One and its impact on Jewish art dealers? Well, the debate among historians tends to run something like this. Um, was modernism a reaction to or against um, the First World War, or as it was then called, the Great War, um, the European War? Uh, we know all too well why it's called the First World War in modern parlance. Um, in fact, modern art and modern literature um, begin before the war, um, but they are certainly given a shot in the arm um, by the war. And some of the greatest works of modern literature appear after the war. Um, and in this connection, we have to note James Joyce's Ulysses, um, published um, um, a century ago. Um, but modern forms of aesthetic expression um, and intellectual expression um, precede the war. Um, what happens to Jewish art dealers during the war? Well, it's a complicated story. Um, the war, as you know, leaves almost no family unaffected directly or indirectly. Millions die or wounded, uh, traumatized physically, traumatized um, emotionally. Uh, it was impossible to simply um, evade the war. Um, but the war was particularly problematic um, in the art world. First, the art market largely grinds to a halt. Um, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, 
but it has an especially um, significant impact on um, avant-garde art, on the artists and um, their champions. Why? Well, the avant-garde was an international cosmopolitan movement. If you look at artistic circles in Paris, you will see, you know, um, individuals from France, Spain, Germany, Austria, Poland, um, Russia. Um, they are united by their aesthetic allegiances rather than by um, national ties, but national nationalist hatred um, um, pushes the avant-garde apart, um, sometimes because of conflicts between individuals, political or not, but largely because um, if you were in Paris in 1914, um, after the guns of August um, detonate, you had choices to make. Um, look at Kahnweiler. Kahnweiler was a German. Um, he was a Francophile, if ever there was one. Um, he had made his life in Paris. He loved French culture and he wanted to remain in Paris. Uh, but he was a pacifist. He was a socialist. He thought the world, the war was crazy, as indeed the war really was. But this did not obviate the fact that he had a decision to make. Um, he didn't want to fight against Germany, his native country. Um, but he didn't want to fight against France either. And <clears throat> if he returned to Germany, he would have been conscripted. And if he remained in France, he might not have been conscripted, um, but his situation would have been very, very delicate. And in fact, he was branded as an enemy alien. So very reluctantly, um, he, he goes to Switzerland and he spends the war there. He's almost entirely sidelined from art dealing. Um, he, he leaves his artists in the lurch um, unintentionally, as I said um, before. Um, but this provides um, an extraordinary opportunity for Leonce Rosenberg. You know, Leonce Rosenberg was crazy for Picasso, as he said. He had been collecting Cubist paintings. Um, he and his brother Paul, um, unable or unwilling to get along, um, who had inherited the family gallery or taken it over at least, um, parted ways in 1910. Um, Léonce began um, trading and in um, art of the Otepuk, rare antiquities, Egyptian, Persian, um, um, Greek, Roman, Chaldean, you name it. Um, but he didn't have a clear sense of direction. And um, he falls in love with Cubism, but the Cubists have a dealer, Conwiler, a great champion, a man who was also an enormously um, gifted and skilled uh, merchant for all of his distaste of his bourgeois family's conventional ways. And when Conwiler decamps for Switzerland, um, uh, Rosenberg finds out that the Picasso and the Cubists are in the lurch. By this time, um, he has enlisted in the French army. Um, he serves as an interpreter 
and he steps into the breach and offers to support Picasso and the Cubists during the war, knowing full well he's not going to be able to sell their works. And he goes off um, um, as an interpreter, as a volunteer to, to the Sun, uh, one of the bloodiest um, battles of the war, on um, which he survives. And while he's at the Somme in his spare time, when he's not working as an interpreter between the English and the French um, forces, um, he writes to his artists or artists that he hoped to represent um, like um, Matisse. But the war has a profound effect, especially on Cubism for another reason. Um, the initial aesthetic um, reaction to Cubism um, was either, in most part either indifference or savage criticism. Uh, what is this art? Um, and it was objected to on aesthetic grounds. Um, but during the war, the terms of discussion change and Cubism is seen as a German good um, because the so many of the supporters of Cubism, uh, Kahnweiler, Uda, Flechtheim, are Germans, um, despite the fact that none of the Cubists were Germans. And in this connection, um, just a short anecdote about Brock makes the point. Um, Brock, French painter, originally a house painter, the co-creator of Cubism, as you know, with um, Picasso, um, enlists, goes to fight for France. And um, when he is away in uniform, um, two French policemen come to his house asking for information from his wife, Marceline, about his activities and whereabouts. You know, what is your husband? They know the answer. And she says, my husband is a painter. And they say, no, madame, your husband is a cubiste because cubism was seen as alien, un-French. I mean, this was ludicrous, but ludicrous or not, it did not stop the French state from declaring Conweiler an enemy alien, from sequestering all of his stock, um, declaring Vili Uda, who was not Jewish, an enemy alien, and sequestering all of his stock. So art and politics become tied together in very, very ugly ways. And in the critique of cubism uh, that is issued by the right or by certain parts of the right during the First World War, there are explicit anti-Semitic elements. Wow. What role do Sephardic Jews play in the story you tell in your book? <laughs> Well, my friends who are of Sephardic origin are unhappy to learn that the answer is very little. Very little. Um, very little. And this is very much a matter of geography, of location. Um, the, um, were there Sephardic Jewish communities in France? Well, of course there were. There were some old established communities in Bayonne and Bordeaux. 
Um, and there were certainly Jewish art collectors among them, but mainly because of this kind of geographical reasons and because what I'm writing about is taking place in, in Europe, most of the Jews, though not all of them that we're talking about were of Ashkenazi origin rather than Sephardic. Um, there are certainly exceptions. Um, but it is ma mainly a story of the role of Ashkenazi Jews. But this has nothing to do with um, genetics or predisposition. It has everything to do with social um, circumstances and conditions. What does your book teach us about restitution? How can the history and politics of looted Jewish art teach something to other victim communities in other conflict situations. In particular, um, is there any comparative lesson that your book can teach those who are interested in looted African arts or looted Caribbean arts or looted indigenous arts? Um, can you talk about the Jewish story of restitution and can you also comment on how the question of dispossession and restitution in the jewish experience could teach something to those who are curious about this phenomenon in the colonial contexts it's a very good question it's a complicated one as i'm sure you know um the di dispossession is dispossession um, cultural crime is cultural crime. Um, but we're talking about very different kinds of circumstances. So if you compare, say, um, Lord Elgin, Thomas Bruce, um, and what he did with the Parthenon marbles to what Hitler and the Nazi top brass did um, with thousands and thousands of works of old and modern art, you immediately see the differences. Um, whatever one thinks of Lord Elgin, he acted with the authority of the Ottoman rulers, um, though certainly not with the authority of any Greek government, which there was none. Um, what he does, he does in full view. And um, on one level, he did what he did to protect um, the marbles, which were in dire condition. Now, this doesn't really um, um, provide any conclusive evidence about the question of whether the marbles should go back to Greece or not. I was recently at a, on a panel or debate at the Boston Athenaeum about this in the fall, and such debates will go on. One of the main differences between the Nazi dispossession of art and these colonial cases is um, we often don't know much in detail about who stole what in, um, say, Africa or the Caribbean. Um, the, the, um, the, the critical details of the case um, don't tend to be known. It doesn't make it you know, 
the slightest bit better, um, of course, but the um, it's harder to know um, who you restitute works to if you don't know the owners. And of course you can say, well, they should go back to a region, a tribe, a state. And, you know, I personally am I'm very sympathetic to those claims, <clears throat> but the cases are very different. What I think unites them is that, you know, art plunder is a form of cultural violence. Um, it, it is a, 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 an attack um, upon uh, a people's assets and assets that are close to the symbolic heart um, of their culture. And these are very precious objects. But the objects in question are different. Um, if you are stealing, say, um, a piece of Renaissance furniture versus stealing um, um, objects that are used in sacred worship, the, to me, those are both crimes, but they are very, very different crimes because one is essentially an attack on property. The other is an attack on religion and culture upon the heart of a people. So I see these things as very different, um, though they are all deplorable um, to one extent or another. You know, Edmund Duvall, um, whose work I admire, recently said, um, that restitution is not simply about the return of objects, that restitution is also about telling their story. And I certainly believe that. And these stories are individual stories. Um, they are easier to tell um, in the case of the European Jews that I write about than about the case of native peoples. Um, which are really collective crimes. So are the so really are the crimes against Jews because the the, the works of art that they own were not taken from them um, as individuals, but as members of a collectivity. What was the fate of Jewish art dealers during the Holocaust? Well, this is very much a case by case um, basis. Um, let me give you, um, actually, if you don't mind pausing for a moment, I just want to get some water <laughs> running out of state. How did Jewish art dealers think about questions of authenticity in relation to the works that they were dealing with? And how did they think about questions of function and art in relation to the works they were dealing with, if at all? I, I think function was not a particularly significant concern for them. And authenticity was, however, a very pressing concern in the world of old masters. Um, you know, art is both a symbolic form and a commodity. And as a commodity, um, which is traded on the market, um, it, its value has fluctuations, it goes up and down 
as um, we know. And in the late 19th century, as interest in European old masters strengthens, um, prices begin to go up for a pretty obvious reasons, especially as there is, you know, competition for limited goods, precious mandras, um, uh, masterpieces, rather, among a, um, a small number of um, individuals who have the means to buy a Rembrandt, uh, a Chardin, a Titian, and, um, and so forth. So that is a fact of life. But the most important thing with um, old masters was determining authenticity, determining authorship. Um, there's always the fear that you were paying good money for a fake. Um, that you were paying over the odds, not for a Rembrandt, but for School of Rembrandt. And that's one of the reasons why the question of authenticity and attribution um, becomes so important. And it's one of the reasons why um, art experts become um, particularly um, important. The, the divides between um, art historians, museum directors and curators, um, art advisors, art dealers um, in the late 19th, early 20th century were by no means as um, clear as they are now. It's much more fluid for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons why Berenson becomes so important in the world of Italian Renaissance art is that Berenson um, provides certificates of authenticity, letters attesting to the fact, no, this is not a Giorgione, this is a Titian, and here's why. Or here, or this is just his judgment. And um, is it tragic if you are buying, end up buying a Giorgione if you thought it was a Titian? Well, perhaps not, unless the, the differential in price was for some reason very large. But the difference between a Rembrandt and a school of Rembrandt. Uh, and the school of Rembrandt and a fake, that was enormous. So determining authorship um, was essential. And one of the things that Berenson learned from Giovanni Morelli was to look at details. So if a, a master, and I'm talking about Rembrandt, so will continue um, um, might hand off a picture to one of his pupils um, or might have the pupils um, fill in some details. Um, and it might be that certain things that are considered details 
um, are left to the pupil rather than the master. So take the example of hands. Hands can be painted rather hastily, um, rather badly, actually. Um, but you can also see the characteristic ways in which an artist treats certain details. And among other paintings, you see this in the magnificent um, portrait that we know as Rembrandt's Jewish Bride, um, in which the exceptionally long fingers um, of the protagonists, which are um, folded together as a symbol of their love, are so beautifully painted. So in this case, the idea that God is in the details is true, as is the idea that dev the devil's in the details. What does your book teach us about trauma? That's another very good question, a very complicated one. Um, and I think here we're going beyond my professional capabilities and training, though not beyond my own um, interests. Um, the, the term trauma is used very loosely these days. And I see this as some of my students who use the term PTSD to refer to things that while not insignificant to them, um, are probably yeah. not on the level <laughs> yeah. that we should use the word trauma. I, I think that with the story um, that we're seeing, there is a trauma of rejection, of exclusion, and of demonization, and of how people um, try to cope with that and how they try to find meaning and value in their lives um, through art, through connection with others. Um, but over and above that, um, fascinating as important as the issue is, I'm afraid I have nothing to contribute to the discussion. As we bring this interview to a close, um... Do you mind sharing with us what you're working on next as your current project, what you're working on now as your subsequent project? Um, well, I can't tell you subsequent, um, but I can tell you current. I've been working on a family history of the Freuds um, from the Nazi rise to power through the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And I'm interested in what happened to them when they came to Britain uh, about issues of immigration and acculturation. And I'm particularly interested in the very different paths members of the family took. Uh, Sigmund Freud came to England, as he said, to die in freedom and also to rejoin you all, all being other members of his family. And I'm interested in the, you know, the political, artistic and social paths carved out by different members of their family. And I'm interested in how 
members of this family react to extremity. So that's what I'm working on now. I wish you the very best with that Thank project. Um, I wanted to convey my gratitude to you for this interview and how much I learned from you. I wanted to also convey how blessed and humbled I was to have read this book and for how much I learned from this book and to commend you on the effort and preparation and perspiration that went into bringing this book into reality for us. I'm tremendously grateful and appreciative. Thank you so much, Ari. You're extraordinarily kind. And thank you for such searching and thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. Um, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for this dialogue and thank you for this book. And, and as I end this interview, um, I wanted to remind our listeners of the following, that this book by Charles Delheim will be available in audiobook published by Penguin Random House in the upcoming week. So I would encourage our listeners to look for that wherever audiobooks are available for you. I would like to close by reminding everyone that I've been your host, Ari Barbalat, with the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. I've been in dialogue with Charles Delheim. We have been discussing his newly published book, Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern, published by Brandeis University Press, 2021. Charles is Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Boston University. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.